I'm going to deal with my favorite king. My favorite king was an abject, total failure in the end of his life. And he's not my favorite for that reason. That stinks. But when he was going, he was going and there was no grass growing under his feet. And I want us, that means me included, to be like this king, King Jehu, and not to slip and be a dropout like he was. Look at 1 Kings chapter 12 with me. 1 Kings chapter 12. I want to give you first some background in Israel that will bring you up to speed on when Jehu came into the scene. I may call him Jehu, Jehu, Jehu. You can't prove that any one of those is correct. I can't find a pronunciation on that word. I've searched everything. It's just a little four-letter word without a pronunciation. Jesus starts the same way, J-E, and you'd pronounce it Jehu according to that. Many people pronounce it Jehu. Let's not worry about that. It's the king of Israel, the son of Nimshi, that we want to study. 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, after Solomon backslid and ended up a wreck, God split the nation in half. You then had Israel made up of ten tribes and Judah made up of Judah and Benjamin with a capital at Jerusalem. Israel had their capital at Samaria. Their king was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the man who had to flee to Egypt because Solomon was trying to kill him. And the king of Judah was Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And we had a few kings follow after that. And now we come to a man named Jeroboam, who is king. And this is Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who was king of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem and Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. See, Jeroboam's a little nervous. He knows he doesn't have David to his father, and there's a lot of uh, David's children running around. And he's afraid that these ten tribes are going to go running back to David because David was quite a king. He says, I've got to do something to stop that. I don't want people making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. What was in Jerusalem? The temple. Here was his solution. Verse 27, If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. I mean, that's a long way to drive. It's a long way to drive to go to church. Why don't we settle for a couple golden calves and we'll keep them right here in verse 29 in Bethel and in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. He wanted to keep that nation to himself so he set up two golden calves and told the people it's inconvenient for you to drive all the way to Jerusalem. Why don't you worship calves right here in Israel at Dan and Bethel? Now that's pretty bad, wouldn't you say? Jeroboam was pretty bad. However, Jeroboam wasn't that bad compared to a man named Omri. Come over to chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. We're a couple generations later now. And again, we're dealing with the nation of Israel as opposed to Judah. 
1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 25. But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. That's the two golden calves. Now the rest of the acts of Omri which he did, and his might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And who was his son? Ahab. Who was the worst king to date in the history of Israel? Omri. Even worse than Jeroboam. Omri was so bad that God considered Omri separate from the other kings of Israel. And that's another discourse. But sometimes in your Bibles where you find men's ages contradicting each other, from Samuel and Kings to Chronicles, it's because God dates things differently than we do. And some he dates from the reign of Omri. Because Omri was so wicked, that was a turning point in their level of wickedness. And I'll be back to that point later. Omri was the worst that Israel had. Now he had a fine son named Ahab. Now let's look, read about Ahab, beginning at verse 29. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, see, Asa's reigning in Judah, that's a separate nation now, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all the world before him. Getting good, isn't it? And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. How many guesses would it take to find out what religious persuasion this woman was of? Can you guess? Her father's name means Baal is with me, with Baal, Ethbaal. King of the Zidonians and went and served Baal, with no wonder, and worshiped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Do you have the picture? Ahab was a bad king. Ahab was a bad king. He was a Baal worshiper, thanks to the woman he married, who was the daughter of a king, a Baal worshiper, good old Jezebel. Ahab, the son of Omri, marries Jezebel and establishes Baal worship for this period of Israel's history. They were worshiping golden calves. And what God says, as if that was a light thing, now they move to Baal. Let's worship the sun along with the calves. So Israel moves into Baal worship, and you know the story of Elijah who slays a few prophets of uh, Baal, and Jezebel doesn't like that, and she says she's going to take care of him. But that's the situation in Israel with Ahab implementing Baal worship. Now come over to 1 Kings 21 just to show you how neighborly Jezebel was. 1 Kings chapter 21. You wouldn't want this woman living next door, I don't care how high the cyclone fence was. 1 Kings chapter 21. I'll paraphrase what you have in 1 Kings 21. Ahab is a real wimp. He looks out his window and he sees a man's vineyard. The man's name is Naboth. And he, oh, he wants that vineyard. And he comes in and he starts crying. 
Ahab is a real wimp. Let me see if I can find this. Oh, he goes and asks Naboth if Naboth would sell it to him. And Naboth said in verse 3, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. I mean, Naboth is going to stick to the original division of the land. He's not going to transfer it from one tribe to another. He's going to keep it. The Lord forbid that I should give it to you, O king. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. You say you're being sarcastic with the word of God. Can I get any more sarcastic than the Holy Spirit? Can you read it? Can you read? Is there sarcasm in that verse? Can you imagine this king? Can you imagine a king laying on his bed, pushing away what the servants are bringing in because he's not going to eat because Naboth wouldn't give me his vineyard. You won't play with me. I won't eat lunch with you. I'm not mocking any more than the Holy Spirit is. Ahab was a wimp. Look at his wife. Verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise, and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote some letters, and she stamped him with Ahab's kingly stamp, his signature, sent the letters out, and had Naboth killed by, conspira by conspiracy, conspiring against him, and then gave the vineyard to her husband Ahab. Verse 17, nice neighbor, right? And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. The little wimp now, his wife has got it for him, and he's wandering around the garden, but God has a message for him. It's pleasant. Let's read. Verse 19, And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed, and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. And Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? He loves the, loves the ministry, doesn't he? And he answered, that is Elijah, I have found thee because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and will take away thy posterity, and will cut off from Ahab him that pisseth against the wall, and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, for the provoc provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger, and made Israel to sin." And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city the dogs shall eat, and him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Not a pretty way to go. You choose the city, 
It's going to be the dogs. You choose the field, it's going to be the birds. That's the way you're going to go. That is the situation in Israel. Ahab and Jezebel. Well, God takes care of Ahab, and Ahab is destroyed in the battle. We've read about that, remember? Where he goes into battle disguised, and a man drew a bow at a certain venture, and found a hole in his armor and took care of Ahab, and Ahab was out of commission. Now, this, that is Israel that we've dealt with so far. Israel. Let's look at the king of Judah at this time. 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. Before we do that, come to chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. Verse 1. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. Remember, Jehoshaphat was the king that went to battle with Ahab. They, disguised, they changed uniforms. Remember the problems that they had when they tried that? And God killed Ahab. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah, but now Jehoram is king of Israel, Ahab's son. The mother is still reigning. Jezebel's still around and doing well, as far as she's concerned. Verse 2, And he wrought evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and like his mother. For he put away the image of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he cleaved unto the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. So Israel, their capital in Samaria, has Jehoram as king, the son of Ahab. Now come to chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8, we'll look at Judah and what's going on there at the same time. 2 Kings chapter 8. Verse 25. Now, when you, read the, when you read the name Jehoram in your Bible, you'll read Jehoram in one verse. The next verse, you'll read Joram, J-O-R-A-M. In Hebrew, it's simply a couple of consonants that make up a name. The consonants can be reversed in order. One of the consonants can be dropped, and it's still the same name. Jehoram and Joram, Ahaziah and Azahiah, same name over and over. It's one of the ways critics go after the Bible and try to say, well, it's all confused. They don't know who they're talking about. It's just the way in Hebrew that you can change a name and it's still the same thing. You'll find that right here as we begin reading. Verse 25, in the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab. Now, what was his name from chapter 3? Jehoram. Same man, because he's the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Did Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, begin to reign? We've got a lot of Similar names here, and there's a reason. The families are getting real close. David's descendants with the descendants of Ahab. Verse 26, Two and twenty years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. Now, I'm not going to do a lot of Bible comparison. You're going to have to take my word for it right now. It wasn't the daughter of Omri. It was the granddaughter. You say, how can you change the Bible that way? That's there just to trip up people who don't want to read the Bible. Daughter is often used for granddaughter. Son is often used for great-great-great-grandson. Was Jesus Christ the son of David? <laughs> Was Jesus Christ the son of Abraham? Was Jesus Christ the son of Adam? That's all through your Bible. What he did is marry the, da the daughter of Ahab. Jehoram, king of Judah, married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Their son was Ahaziah. 
Can you follow that at all? Ahaziah was son of Ahab's daughter and followed Ahab. Verses 25 and 26 talks about Ahaziah. Look at verse 27. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord as did the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Something has happened here. God's chosen seed, his lineage from David, has intermarried with the house of Ahab. So what we have is Jehoram, or Joram, reigning over Israel, the son of Ahab. And we have Ahaziah reigning over Judah, the son-in-law of Ahab. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Do you think God thought very highly of David's descendants marrying into the house of Ahab? when the house of Ahab did evil in a greater way than any king that had ever come before? You know, I want to tell you something. God becomes a very careless bookkeeper when there's sin involved. Matthew chapter 1 gives the lineage of Jesus Christ. And when you come down to verse 8, let's read. These are the kings of Judah. Let's, get, let's start verse 7. And Solomon begat Roboam, and Roboam begat Abia, and Abia begat Asa, and Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Azias. Now we just read that Joram married Athaliah and begat Ahaziah. Didn't we? Didn't we? God takes out three kings of Judah and skips three generations in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 8. He takes out Ahaziah. He takes out Ahaziah's son, Joash. You remember the little seven-year-old boy that was raised up by his nurses and made king? He's taken out of the lineage, and so is Amaziah, Joash's son. Three generations. What did God say? He would visit the iniquities of the fathers unto the children of the third and the fourth generation, and those three are taken right out. Joram did not begat Ozias. There are three men deleted out of there, and one of them is Ahaziah, and there's a reason. God considered them part of the house of Ahab. They weren't part of the house of David. You say, you're making the Bible awful complicated this evening. It takes a little bit of study, but not that much, and it's interesting. I'll tell you, if you don't know that those three kings are missing, I'll give you some problems that'll really make you think the Bible's confusing. It's great if we'll study the whole book. God took them out because God considered them descendants of Ahab as opposed to descendants of David. And Jesus Christ was the son of David and he was going to keep that lineage clear, even if it did mean slipping and forgetting three men in fulfillment of scriptural prophecy of their wickedness. That's the situation in Israel. Let's come now to 2 Kings chapter 8. Back to 2 Kings chapter 8. We have Jehoram, king of Israel, son of Ahab. We have Ahaziah, king of Judah, son-in-law of Ahab, as the two kings. Verse 28, speaking of Ahaziah, And he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to the war against 
Hazael, king of Syria, in Ramoth Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. That's the king of Israel. And King Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. This is, this is fantastic stuff. We've got two kings. God considers them both the sons of Ahab, and where are they? In Jezreel. Do you remember the word Jezreel? Be previous this evening. Naboth had his vineyard where? In Jezreel. Isn't it interesting that both kings are in one place and the name of that place happens to be Jezreel? Look at, keep your finger there and come over to 2 Chronicles 22. I love our God so much. When, when you can see his hand in these affairs of the kings of these two nations. Second Chronicles chapter 22, look at verse 6. This is speaking of Jehoram, the king of Israel. And Second Chronicles 22, verse 6. And he returned to be healed in Jezreel because of the wounds which were given him at Ramah when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. Same event. And Azariah, see the change in name, same man, that's Ahaziah, son-in-law of Ahab. And Azariah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab, at Jezreel, because he was sick. And the destruction of Ahaziah, see the change in name in one verse? Do you see in verse 6 it's Azariah? And then in verse 7 it's Ahaziah? You've got the same Hebrew consonants that say the same thing. What's the difference between saying God, God is the Savior and salvation is of God? Is there any difference in meaning? None. In Hebrew, that's what they're doing with the change in consonants. Same name, same meaning. But I just wanted you to see that. Don't get confused. I know it looks bad. It looks bad, but Azariah and Ahaziah are the same person. Verse 7, And the destruction of Ahaziah was of God by coming to Joram, for when he was come, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had appointed to cut off the house of Ahab. Who does God consider in the house of Ahab? A son of David named Ahaziah and Jehoram. And they're both in one place, and the name of that place happens to be Jezreel. And who got him there? The hand of God has them there in that place. Now, we come to 2 Kings 9. 2 Kings 9 and 10 are the two chapters that deal with my man, King Jehu, as far as Old Testament kings are concerned. The first thing we want to cover is the calling of Jehu. That covers verses 1 through 13 of 2 Kings 9. Verse 1, And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins, and take this box of oil in thine hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Now look at he's been referred to as the son of Nimshi in several other places. Now he's the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. See how son can stand for grandson? And go in and make him arise from up, up from among his brethren, and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil, and pour it on his head, and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. 
then open the door and flee and tarry not. Good reason for that. I mean, when you've got two kings just a few miles away and you go anoint a third man king, get out of there. Someone's going to be accusing you of sedition. You can understand that. You know, they're practical. The prophets were practical. They didn't just presume on God's sovereignty all the time, did they? Get out of there. They didn't, did they? Elisha here is telling him to flee. Well, Elisha does what he's, uh, the, the son of the prophet does what he's told, and he walks in in verse 5. You know, I like the courage of the son of the prophet to go do that. I mean, he walks into a room full of captains of uh, Ahab's army, who's now under the control of Jehoram. Verse 5, And when he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting, and he said, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which of all us? And he said, To thee, O captain. First little indication about the personality of Jehu, unassuming and some humility. The man walks in and says, I have a message to thee, O captain. And Jehu says, to which of us? <laughs> you know, the man's speaking right to him. These a singular pronoun there. And he says, to thee, O captain. Didn't you hear me the first time? Jehu was just trying to sit in the crowd of all these captains and wasn't presuming on anything. Verse 6, And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over the people. And he goes on to describe the destruction that Jehu is going to wreck on the house of Ahab. And I'm going to skip that portion and come down to verse 11. Then Jehu came forth to the servants of his Lord, and one said unto him, Is all well? Wherefore came this mad fellow to thee? And he said unto them, Ye know the man and his communication. He thought these guys must have known what, was, what he had to say. I mean, he didn't want to just come out and say, I'm the new king. You know? <laughs> I mean, when they already thought the guy was mad that came in and talked to him, right? They said, what's this mad fellow come and tell you? Well, he told me I was king. He didn't just say that right off the bat. And they said in verse 12, it is false. You know, whatever he said, it is false. Tell us now. Come on, tell us. And he said, thus and thus spake he to me, saying, thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. What'd they do? Then they hasted, took every man his garment, and put it under him on the top of the stairs, and blew with trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. And see, it goes on to describe in verse 15 that Joram is in Jezreel, being healed of the wounds that he received. Next step in Jehu's life. He's been called to the ministry now. What's his ministry? cut off the house of Ahab, which includes the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And he does love the ministry. He does take the oversight willingly, as you will see. He does. We now look at the death of two kings in short order. Verse 16. Well, now let's get verse 15. But King Joram was returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria, See, there's a lot of repetition in the Old Testament. You need it to get the facts straight. And Jehu said, If it be your minds, then let none go forth nor escape out of the city to go tell it in Jezreel. There in Ramoth Gilead. First strategy, don't let anyone cut the telegraph wires from Ramoth Gilead to Jezreel. We don't want Jehoram and Ahaziah knowing what's going on. First rule. Verse 16, So Jehu rode in a chariot. I don't think anyone would have passed him anyway. 
So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, was come down to see Joram. Remember how he got there? The Lord got him there. And there stood a watchman on the tower in Jezreel, and he spied the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take an horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So there went one on horseback to meet him and said, said to Jehu, Thus saith the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What hast thou to do with peace? <laughs> nice answer. What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. You get in behind me and join the group. And the watchman told, saying, The messenger came to them, but he cometh not again. You can just imagine Joram's laying there in bed, and he's got this watchman with binoculars looking out this, well, no binoculars, looking out this tower, and he sees this band coming. They send it a messenger, and the messenger gets to the band, and no more messenger. And the watchman relays that to Joram laying there in bed. Verse 19, Then he set out a second on horseback, which came to them and said, Thus saith the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, What hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me. And the watchman told Joram again, saying, He came even unto them, and cometh not again. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he driveth furiously. Now they're spotting something about this king. You know, all it was in the beginning was a cloud of dust. They didn't know what was coming. Maybe Haziel, king of the Syrians, was coming again. Now we have Jehu coming in his chariot and he's driving furiously and he's got a reputation, doesn't he? He's got a reputation, doesn't he? How They couldn't see him. Their binoculars weren't that good. They were simply going by the way he was driving that chariot. I mean, the wheels were about to come off as he went around corners. But he was driving furiously and here he came with the two messengers behind him. And Joram said, make ready. I know I'm supposed to be here heal being healed from my wounds, but I better find out what's going on. Make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out against Jehu. Tough fellows, aren't they? They're supposed to be kings, but they both have to go together. They went out against Jehu and met him. Look at where they meet him. They met him in the portion of Naboth the Jezreelite. And it came to pass when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? Remember, Jehu is one of his captains. I mean, this is like Secretary of War that's riding up. Is it peace, Jehu? Look at, look at the respectful answer. And he answered, What peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. What could you say in other words? Did he call Joram? I'll leave that to your imagination. And verse 23, and Joram turned his hands. You know, he's holding the reins of that chariot. He turned his hands and fled and said to Ahaziah, there is treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu said to his bodyguard, draw a bow and shoot him. No, Jehu didn't want anyone else to get involved in this work. He wanted to do it himself. And Jehu drew a bow with his full strength and smote Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow went out at his heart, and he sunk down in his chariot. Now, I like Jehu for a number of reasons just beyond his driving. You know, he had a reputation for enthusiasm in his driving. 
he wasn't going to let grass grow under him. He had the reputation. If he was going someplace, he drove furiously. When he was told to do something, he did it. And I mean, when Joram knew that Jehu wasn't come in peace, did he want to take him on? He wanted to get out of there, and he wanted Ahaziah to get out of there because they were both in danger. But notice that Jehu draws the bow. He doesn't assign it to anyone else. He wants to do it, and he doesn't do it half-heartedly, does he? He just doesn't want that arrow to go in. He wants the arrow to come out the other side, and it does. And Jehoram sinks down in his chariot. Then said Jehu to Bidkar his captain, I mean, there is some dirty work someone else can do, and that's throwing the bodies out. Take up and cast him in the portion of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, notice they were captains for Ahab. They were riding along with Ahab too when they met Elijah. Jehu is now talking to his captain Bidkar. For remember how that when I and thou rode together after Ahab his father, the Lord laid this burden upon him. And now he's quoting. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, saith the Lord, and I will requite thee in this plat. Ever heard of a plat map the county tax assessor has? I will requite thee in this plat, saith the Lord. Now therefore take and cast him into the plat of ground according to the word of the Lord. Jehu did exactly what God said. There's the plat, throw his body in because God said this, we do this. Exactly what God said. Jehu was a captain for Ahab. You can see that. He'd heard the words of Elijah. He remembered the words of Elijah and he did exactly what God had said. Now we have Ahab's son laying in the field that once belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Verse 27, but when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house. Now he's running through this vineyard and trying to hide. And Jehu followed after him and said, Smite him also in the chariot. And they did so at the going up to Gur, which is by Ibleam. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his sepulcher with his fathers in the city of David. And in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, began Ahaziah to reign over Judah. Two kings are down. The second aspect of Jehu's ministry, the first operation he had, that was to kill Joram and Ahaziah. Notice these things about Jehu so far. First of all, he's not like Gideon. Remember when God appeared to Gideon and said, Gideon, I want you to go and relieve Israel from the Midianites. Gideon said, how do I know you want me to do that? I'm going to put this food out here on this fire, and if you'll light it in some unusual way, I'll go. Well, God burned up the meal right there on the rocks. And then Gideon said, well, I'm still not ready to go. I'm going to put a fleece out here. I want you to make the fleece wet and everything around it dry. Then I'll go. So God did that, and he said, well, I better establish it in the mouth of three witnesses just to be sure. I want everything around it to be wet, and I want the fleece to be dry. You've heard about people putting out a fleece. Well, finally, Gideon decided to go, and he mustered the biggest army he could, and God said that's way too big, and Gideon just didn't go like Jehu, did he? I mean, when Jehu got the message, Jehu went to the job. He immediately cut off communication to Jezreel and hopped in his chariot and got there first. The two kings were out of commission. We learn of his reputation for furious driving. He was an enthusiastic, zealous man to perform whatever he was given to do.
Observe also that he did the job himself and he did it with his full might. I want every one of you to be like Jehu. He is careful to execute the judgment just exactly as God required it of him. And last of all, remember that those two kings were together to make it so easy because God had purposed to destroy the house of Ahab for their wickedness. Now we've got two kings out of the way, but who is still alive that God has a vested interest in? Jezebel, Jehoram's mother, Ahaziah's mother-in-law, Ahab's wife, son of Ethbaal. Operation two. Jehu takes care of Jezebel. Verse 30, And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. I wonder what she heard. And this is interesting now. And she painted her face and tired her head. Now that doesn't mean she put sleep dirt in the corner of her eyes and looked like she had just woke up. When they tired their heads in the Old Testament, when they tired their heads in 1611, that means to put a hat upon your head. If you go over to Isaiah chapter 3 and read about what women wore in 1611 English, and in that period of time, a hat is called a tire. Remember you read an expression about their round tires about their head? That's not a good year that they wore around their neck or anything like that. It was a hat. She is dressing to the hilt and painting her face. She had always been able to manipulate men that way, and she's painting her face, tiring her head, putting a crown, whatever as the queen, or some other decorative piece on her head. That's what the word tire means. And looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, had Zimri peace, who slew his master? Now Zimri was a king that came a little while before this, and he had conspired against his master and only lasted a few days because he was killed by someone else. And what she's doing is we're trying to remind him of a historical event. Now, you know, if Samson would have come through here, we'd have had a problem, wouldn't we have? He'd have gone for the woman. If David would have come here, maybe gone for the woman. If so I mean, if Solomon would have been in this chariot and this painted woman stuck her face out the window, I mean, lunch today? We're to judge by character in the Bible. Solomon would have failed based on what we read about him. He married every, he married the daughter of every foreign king. Well, I believe it. I believe it. Samson, David, and Solomon would not have made it. And I, I love the next part here. And he lifted up his face to the window and he did not say, how about lunch today? He said, who is on my side? Who? And there looked out to him two or three eunuchs. Before we go on, just let me say, you know, the Holy Spirit is interesting. Why did the Holy Spirit say two or three? Didn't he know? <laughs> Why did the Holy Spirit say two or three eunuchs? Because the Holy Spirit talks the same way we do. Two or three eunuchs. Why does it say about 120 names at Jerusalem? Why did, didn't he know? It's, I just find little things like that interesting. God wrote this book, and I take delight in every word of it. Two or three looked out. <laughs> two or three. I don't know. Two or three. And he said, throw her down. I love it. Short and sweet. Does this guy waste words? Throw her down. 
So they threw her down. <laughs> and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses. And what did he do? He rode his horse over. <laughs> and he trod her underfoot. And then what did he do? He went and gave her a Christian burial. And when he was come in, he had eaten drink and said, Go, see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Wherefore they came again and told him, they probably had a little bag with them. <laughs> Wherefore they came again and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the carcass of Jezebel shall be as dung upon the face of the field in the portion of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, This is Jezebel. They didn't put her in some fine coffin and set her up in the White House and have a, a week of mourning where everybody could file by and say to their children, this is Jezebel. You know all they had left? A skull, palms of her hands, and her two feet. God's word had been performed precisely. What can we learn about Jehu from operation number two? He goes to the job immediately. You didn't find much about his life in between uh, killing the two kings and then taking care of the queen, did you? He was going right after what he was sent to do. Second of all, we find out that the woman didn't influence him at all. Third, we find out that he hated evil. When he had a chance to have that woman thrown out and have her blood splattered in the wall, he did it. Didn't take him long to ask for it. And then he rode his horse over. You say, that just sounds terrible. That's the Bible. Wait till I get to the conclusion what God thinks of all that. God hates evil, and that woman was one of the worst that ever lived. He's not done. Chapter 10. <clears throat> and Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Two men and a woman is not enough. Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters. Remember, Samaria is the capital. Now he's dealing with the big boys. And Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to them that brought up Ahab's children, saying, Now as soon as this letter cometh to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, I mean sons of kings, and there are with you chariots and horses, a fenced city also, and armor, look even out the best and meetest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. What a patriotic speech. He's trying to build these men of Samaria up to set one of the sons of Ahab on the throne, and let them reign as the sons of Ahab. Well, now, when that came from Jehu, it didn't have quite a nationalistic ring to it. Verse 4, But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, two kings stood not before him. How then shall we stand? And he that was over the house, and he that was over the city, the elders also, and the bringers up of the children, sent to Jehu, saying, We are thy servants. And we will do all that thou shalt bid us. We will not make any king. Do thou that which is good in thine eyes. Then he wrote a letter the second time to them, saying, If ye be mine, and if ye will hearken unto my voice, take ye the heads of the men your master's sons, 
and come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. And they do have bags this time. Well, they have baskets, excuse me. They have baskets. He says, if you're mine, you can prove it this way. I want 70 heads by tomorrow this time. Does he waste any time? He gets the job done, doesn't he? Tomorrow at this time, synchronized watches. I want 70 heads in baskets. And it came to pass when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slew 70 persons and put their heads in baskets and sent him them to Jezreel. Now you may say, well, that sounds like maybe they killed 70 other people and didn't send the, sons, the, the heads of the sons of the king. No, they did. Look at verse 6 just to see the, the second sentence in verse 6. Now the king's sons being 70 persons. It's just, a, it's just the way that the Bible speaks referring to the king's sons and then returning right around and calling them 70 persons again. And we can tell from the context that Jehu is satisfied with what arrives in the baskets. Verse 8, And there came a messenger and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay ye them in two heaps at the entering in of the gate until the morning. Now, can you imagine going into a city and instead of a pretty sign that says, Welcome, to Greenville, South Carolina, Tourist Information Center, one quarter of a mile ahead, you have two stacks of heads. This is Jehu. This is my man. This is God's man. Verse 9, And it came to pass in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, he didn't have to ask for the people to come, did he? I mean, they were there. What's going on? And he said to all the people, Ye be righteous. Behold, I conspired against my master and slew him. But who slew all these? Now, who did slay all those 70? Jehu says, I did slay my master, but who slew all these? Now, who's really responsible for these 70? Jehu is. You're going to see more of that in just a minute. I conspired against my master and slew him, but, but who slew all these? You know, he's trying to push the blame off on it. Who did this atrocious act? Because remember, he hasn't dealt with any of the cities yet as a group of people. I mean, he took care of Jehoram and Ahaziah and Jezebel so fast. He hadn't dealt with a city. Now he's got the capital city of Israel, Samaria, and all the people are standing out there, and they've got 70 heads. And he says, you're righteous. I did slay my master, but who killed all these? Know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spake concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord hath done that which he spake by his servant Elijah. Always going back to the word of God to confirm every event. Based on the word of God. Every little section we're reading, he ties it into the word of God. Verse 11, So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men, and his kinfolks, and his priests, until he left him none remaining. And that's a lot of killing. I mean, the day that Elijah stood on Mount Carmel, there were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the groves. I mean, Ahab did have a few priests. I mean, when you've got 70 sons, do you have any kin beyond the sons? <laughs> he took them all, none remaining. Verse 12, And he arose and departed and came to Samaria. Now he was coming to the capital city, and as he was at the shearing house in the way, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Now we're shifting to king too. 
and said, Who are ye? And they answered, We are the brethren of Ahaziah. And we're going down to a family reunion. We're going down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. Well, that's an innocent enough activity. And he said, Take them alive. For how long? And they took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house. Even two and forty men, neither left he any of them. Is he thorough? He didn't leave any of them. He slew forty and two and dropped them in the pit at the shearing house. He didn't want anyone to see this. He still had some work to do. He was on his way to Samaria, capital of Israel, capital of Baal worship. He, has to, he says, take him alive. You know, and whoever was on the street at that point heard him, take him alive. I mean, this man's not that bad. He takes him back behind the shed and chops him up and drops him in a pit. He doesn't want anyone to see what he's up to. He's on his way to Samaria for the big one. That's down through verse 14. And when he was departed thence, he laid it on Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he saluted him and said to him, Is thine heart right as my heart is with thy heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Je Jehu answers, If it be, give me thine hand. And he took him in his and he gave him his hand, and he took him up to him into the chariot. And he said, now Jehu speaking to Jehonadab, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they made him ride in his chariot. You can imagine that Jehonadab was a little nervous riding in a chariot with Jehu. I mean, who would that be like riding with? <laughs> and when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed him, according to the saying of the Lord, which he spake to Elijah. This man, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, is an interesting man. Ezekiel chapter 35 is a whole chapter about this man. Because Israel was so wicked, he set some special guidelines for his family about who they could marry and how they could behave, and they couldn't drink any alcoholic beverages at all. He was just going to put some very restrictive guidelines on his family to show God his concern over the wickedness in Israel. A very, very righteous man. What does it tell you about Jehu wanting him in his chariot? It's a lover of good men. Lover of good men, just we read about in the ministry. He wants to be around good men and have them with him. Notice that Jehu is proud of his zeal. Proud of his zeal. Come and see my zeal for the Lord. Phase three. We've seen phase, we need to come to phase four now. The first three phases are the death of two kings, the death of Jezebel, the woman, the death of the two families. Is there anyone left? A few descendants of Ahaziah. Because remember, God has to keep David's lineage going. He did leave a few, although God considered him part of Ahab, there were some left because God had to get to Jesus Christ through the lineage of David. But as far as Ahab was concerned, it is over. Now this is good. Phase four, mop up, operation. The death of Baal worship in Israel. Verse 18, And Jehu gathered all the people together in Samaria, the capital, and said unto them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. <laughs> Why, you dirty liar. <laughs> Isn't he? Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. 
This is to all the people. Now therefore call unto me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, and all his priests. Let none be wanting. I want them all there. For I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Whosoever shall be wanting, he shall not live. <laughs> what about the ones that did come? <laughs> Whosoever shall be wanting, he shall not live. But Jehu did it in subtlety to the intent that he might destroy the worship of Baal. Jim Edwards has been over this passage before when he didn't think that you could ever lie and have it be considered a righteous act. But we'll see that it most definitely is. That was a long time ago. Brother Jim knows full well that there are cases for this type of behavior. Ahab served Baal a little. Wait till you see me serve Baal. Jehu tells all the people of Samaria. Verse 20, and Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. I mean, wow, wow. Ahab served him a little and Jehu's going to serve him much. This is going to be good time. Revival is on the way. <laughs> Revival. I mean, this Elijah and Elisha, they've been wet blankets on our Revival. Now Jehu's here. We're going to have a great time. And Jehu sent through all Israel, all ten tribes, and all the worshipers of Baal came. There's, can you imagine their anticipation and excitement? All the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left that came not. Jehu gets the job done, doesn't he? If he hadn't allied so boldly, would they all have come? I mean, after what he's done to Ahab and Jezebel and Jehoram and Ahaziah, and they came into the house of Baal. And the house of Baal was full from one end to another. I mean, this was a crusade. They packed this stadium, didn't they? He got them all there. And he said unto him that was over the vestry, bring forth vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. This is, you got to read your Bible and think about it. Okay, we've got, let's say there's a thousand worshipers of Baal. We don't know how many. There could have been 10,000. There could have been 100,000. They're all in there, and they've got swords dangling at their side and daggers on their calves, daggers under their arms. And Jehu says, bring out the vestments. We want to be, we want to have our gowns on for this worship, don't we? Puts the vestments on everyone. How fast can you get to your weapons when they're body weapons when your vestments are on? See the wisdom of Jehu? He's slick. This guy's slick. Well, they've got all their vestments on now. And Jehu went, and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal. These two Baal worshipers, these two Baal worshipers walk in there and said unto the worshipers of Baal, Search, and look that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but the worshipers of Baal only. We don't want this worship service to be messed up with any worshipers of that Lord of Elijah. Get them out of here. We only want worshipers of Baal in here. You get the idea. He wants it pure. And I love verse 24. Do you know who offered the sacrifice? Verse 24, And when they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed fourscore men without, that's eighty, and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, he that letteth him go, his life shall be for the life of him. He plays hardball, doesn't he? With the men around him, he expects them to perform. 
he assigns 80 men around that place and says, I've brought them all here. I've got them here. I've done my duty. If any one of them escapes, I'll, your life will pay for it. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering. Who offered the burnt offering? This isn't. Who offered the burnt offering? Jehu. God's servant, the minister of the Lord, is standing in there offering a sacrifice to Baal. I mean, he's going to play it right to the last second to show so that no one is cautious. I, if, if you were one of those Baal worshipers, would you be a little nervous? Well, with him offering the sacrifice? And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and slay them, let none come forth. And they smote them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the captains cast them out, and went to the city of the house of Baal. And they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal and burned them. And they break down the image of Baal, and break down the house of Baal, and made it a draft house unto this day. They were thorough. They killed every worshiper of Baal in Israel. They went to the city of Baal. They went to the temple of Baal. They pulled out all the images of Baal. They broke up all the images of Baal. They break down the house of Baal, and they made it a draft house. Now come over in your Bibles. Come over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. When was the last time you went to a draft house? Matthew chapter 15. We need to learn what a draft house is, and we'll use the Bible to define it for us. I'll, we need to compare Scripture. Matthew chapter 15, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the draft. Can you guess what the draft is? What you eat goes into your belly, and then what you eat and is in your belly is cast out into the draft. Now, we don't use seven-letter words. I believe, let's look at the word draft there. Seven letters to describe something like that, but it's a draft. The Lord here is telling you what a draft is by comparison. It's where body excrement goes. Jehu made the temple of Baal into a draft house. It was made into a gigantic public restroom. I love it. You say, that is so light. Listen, this is what the Holy Spirit inspired. And he said the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures. It is comforting to know that there have been men on this planet who when they saw evil, they did the job the way I like to see a job done. Can't you wait till the day that's done in Rome? I wish it, I was in the chariot. <laughs> I've, I've heard, I won't say what I've heard relative to that. They broke down the image of Baal. They broke down the house of Baal. They made it a draft house unto this day. Verse 28, thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. You know, it's, this is a good story to remember to show when a servant of God can lie to get a job done that God's commanded him to do. And did he bear false witness against anyone? Those were Baal worshipers. 
Did he lead them into sin? They were already Baal worshipers. He didn't lead them into any sin. He simply did the job that God gave him to do. Verse 29. Let's, don't read verse 29. Don't read it. Come to verse 30. We're dealing with the end of Jehu now. He's through his mop-up operation. We come to verse 30. And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well. Yes, we would agree, wouldn't we? In executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. God guaranteed that for four generations Jehu's house would be on the throne of Israel. Notice the verse again. It says thou didst well, we agree, in executing that which is right in God's eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart. It was in God's heart and it was in God's eyes that Joram would receive an arrow through him that Jezebel would be thrown down and blood sprinkled on the wall and horses and Jehu ride over her. That Ahaziah be killed as he's fleeing. That the 70 heads be set up at Jezreel and the house of Baal be turned into a draft house. Jehu did it all. Jehu had zeal. He said, come on, let me show you my zeal for the Lord. Jehu had initiative. He got to the job, didn't he? Any procrastinating? None. God's commanded me to do it. I'll go do it. Precise obedience. I mean, he made sure the bodies were in the plat of ground where they belonged. He did everything according to the instruction God had given him. He loved good men. He had Jehonadab, who was a better man than he, in that chariot with him. Come up and let me show you my zeal for the Lord. Because Jehonadab had a great deal and was known for it. He was a hater of those that were evil, as he hated Jezebel and the worshipers of Baal. Great! And God loved what he saw and said, For four generations your house will have the throne of Israel. But look at verse 29. Howbeit from the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin in the first place, and I'm giving you the sense. Jehu departed not from after them, to wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. Verse 31. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. What a sorry ending to a great story. He didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam, right back in the same mess that led to Ahab. And God said, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Why did God only give Jehu four generations? I mean, he did everything God wanted him to do, and he did a bang-up job, didn't he? Come to Hosea with me. This Hosea chapter 1. 
Hosea chapter 1. I wish, I, I wish we could have a service once a week so that we could preach through the Old Testament. See, the prophets way back, you're turning hundreds of pages, aren't you? We're coming to the prophet Hosea, but Hosea was speaking in the days just following Jehu while his sons are on the throne. While his third son is on the throne, Hosea is prophesying right here. Look at verse 4. See, God has told Hosea to go marry a woman of whoredoms and have some children as an object lesson for Israel. Verse 4, And the Lord said unto him, that is to Hosea, Call his name Jezreel. Familiar word? Call his name Jezreel for yet a little while. And I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. God here is saying, I will avenge the blood of Jezreel. Who splattered all the blood in Jezreel? It was everywhere. Seventy heads had it running out all over the city gate. Jezebel's was all over the wall. Joram's was out in the field. Who shed that blood? Jehu did. God was going to avenge that blood upon Jehu's sons. Because Jehu didn't do the job right? No. Because Jehu went right back into the same filth for which he shed the blood. And God hates hypocrites. And the same blood was going to be avenged upon Jehu's house. This was the third generation, the second, the grandson of Jehu. He was shortly killed, and his son became king and lasted six months, and it was over with. And Jehu's house was gone, and all the bloodshedding, that glorious victory of Jehu obtained in 2 Kings 9 and 10 was turned upon Jehu's house himself because he with so much zeal executed the judgment of God and then went and fell into the same sins. Now let's turn the tables, the guns home. We talk a lot, don't we? We're the cockiest church around. And that's great. Was Jehu little cocky, driving his chariot furiously? Come up with me. Let me show you my zeal for the Lord. Don't, isn't that what we say to our friends? Come and hear a, come to a Bible study with me. You need to hear the teaching of the scriptures for a change. Come and see the church in Greenville. And we rail on the Jezebels. We rail on the worshipers of Baal, don't we? The Campbellites the Church of Rome, don't we? We call names, don't we? Joram, the whoredoms of thy mother. Do we ever talk like that? That is great. God loves it. And God will reward you for it while you're doing it. However, to whom much is given, much is going to be required. And if you are so cocky and so strong in your zeal for the Lord of hosts, with so much knowledge and zeal for performing the word of the Lord, then you turn and you're moved away from the hope of the gospel. You don't continue in what the Lord has taught. 
He is going to come after you with a vengeance because you have opened up your mouth and condemned yourself when you were speaking those things about others. We execute judgment in this church, don't we? We don't waste a lot of time doing it, do we? Does God love that? Oh, he rejoices when we execute judgment. How long will it take him to execute judgment if we are moved away from what he's called us to do? He is going to be right after us. I want you to be Jehus who are winners, who hang in there with that kind of zeal, enthusiasm, perfect obedience, love of good men, hater of evil, till the day you die. How can I communicate that to you any better? Do you want to be a man like Jehu? To have a testimony like verse 30? That you did well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and you did all that I had in my heart. What a testimony. That's why he's my man. That's why I love the story of Jehu because of God's testimony, because I want that testimony. And as an ambassador for Christ, I want that testimony for every one of you by name. That is what I'm here for. If I'm not here for any, if I'm here for anything less than that, let's call it quits. If you can't do it the best, like Jehu did, skip doing it. God hates second best. God hates lukewarm activity. Let's go all the way. But all the way means hanging in there and you can read your Old Testament from now to the day you die and you'll find very few men who hung in there till the day they died. You'll number them on about three fingers. It is pitiful. Let me close with a few verses of Scripture. Let's move some pages. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verse 31, we need to move. I'm just going to read some verses and I want you to listen to them. John 8, 31, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If ye continue in my word, your disciple indeed, and it's those people who know the truth, and the truth will make them free. You like the little bit of freedom we've got right now? It can get better. It can get better if we'll continue in his word. And that is an exciting prospect. Look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, Paul is on his first missionary journey as a preacher among the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13 and verse 43. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God, which is what I'm trying to do to you and especially to David and Nyla Johnson, persuading you to continue in the grace of God, and it is not easy. All of those great men failed before us. It is, I'm talking about the hardest challenge this world has to offer any man who wants to prove himself a man. And that's to continue in the word of the Lord. You can't do it. I challenge anyone. I dare you to come and see my zeal for the Lord and be like me, God helping me. I want to be like Jehu. I want to continue in the grace of God. Look at Acts chapter 14. Acts 14, verse 22, speaking of Paul again. 
as he comes back through the same churches a second time before he goes home, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. It's no easy road. I'm talking about soldiers. Why do you think Paul said, I have fought a good fight? I have kept the faith. If you keep the faith, it's because you've been a good soldier and you've done some fighting because we have too much, through much tribulation to do it. Look at Romans chapter 2 and verse 7. Romans chapter 2 and verse 7. Here is the description of those that shall be given eternal life. Romans 2, 7. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. What do they do? What is the true evidence of a person who's going to be given eternal life? Patient continuance in well-doing. Jehu give the evidence. Jehu give the evidence? Based on what we can see, is Je was Jehu a child of God? No. No. You don't have any basis for saying that. Balaam obeyed the word of the Lord and went and blessed Israel. And that proves nothing. It's continuing patiently. Unless God tells us otherwise. Look at Romans 11:22, Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. Speaking of the Jews who were cut off, Paul's writing to Gentiles. They lost the gospel privileges. They lost the fifth generation on the throne, if you'll accept the analogy. Romans 11:22. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, Jehu, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off. We can be cut off just like those Jews if we don't continue. Let's continue. I'm talking about continuing tonight, as Jehu should have. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. Colossians 1, 23. I'll exhaust my references in a minute. Colossians 1, 23. You can show that you are going to be presented holy and unblameable and unprovable, that's verse 22, in God's sight, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. If you let anything move you away from the hope of the gospel, if you don't continue in the faith, grounded and settled, you don't have evidence that you're one of God's elect, let alone showing yourself to be a man after God's own heart, like a Jehu should have been and continued. And James 1.25 will be the last tonight. James chapter 1 and verse 25. It's what I began with in my prayer this evening, that you would be doers of the word and not hearers only. What's a person like that? He hears well and doesn't do well. What is he doing to himself? He's deceiving himself. Verse 22. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Let's not be deceived, men. Let's know where we're going and what we're doing and stay in that course. Verse 25, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and I've preached to you that law of liberty many times, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. That is what I want for every one of you, to be blessed in the deed. And what's the deed? Continuing. 
continuing in the perfect law of liberty and not being a forgetful hearer. Is it a challenge? It's the biggest challenge anyone could ever give you. You want to talk about exhortation? You're getting exhortation right now. How important is it to you to be a man like Jehu and to keep it up? Can you imagine the kind of commendation you'd get at the end of your life if you kept that up? Because you can see from these verses, it's continuing that counts. May God bless the preaching of his word to a continuing congregation in Greenville.